how it all ends, the book of Revelation, our 14th installment, do you understand the final war? Now, if I ask you in a quiz what the final war was, you might think of Armageddon, or maybe you think of the one that's right after the millennium. But that's not really. Those are just skirmishes. The final war, in one of the greatest and clearest and most sweeping prophetic passages, which you probably already have studied or will, Daniel 9, 24 to 27, God explains that all of human history swirls around the Jewish people, the people God has chosen, called Israel. So God says all history swirls around them. And the city that God has chosen, called Jerusalem, mentioned over 800 times, the most mentioned place in the Bible. Jerusalem, the Jews, and the third temple are the trigger. It's the fuse that ignites that war we're called, or we call, and the Bible refers to as Armageddon. But actually, it's a bigger battle. I call it a cosmic battle. Uh, World War III, although they're saying in the news that what we're seeing in Ukraine is the beginning of World War III, I guess that's true. Everything we're seeing, according to Jesus, about wars and rumors of wars and the birth pains, all of them are leading to a crescendo. So that's true. But the real World War III, the Bible talks about, involves Iran attacking Jerusalem and Satan's expression of his endless hatred for the Jewish people. That's what God calls this massive battle that's going on. It's Satan knowing God's placed his name on a group of people in a city, Jerusalem and the Jewish people and the nation of Israel. And Satan knows God's put his name on them, and so Satan wants to get rid of them to show that God can't keep his word, that God can't be trusted, And he wants to defeat God. And that's the big war. And what we see today is one expression of that. The the conflict between Satan and God and that war in heaven. Where we are is still, we're only at the third of the seven stops on our journey. It's the, the main kind of message in the center of the book of Revelation the tribulation events, they go back and forth between heaven and earth, and that's exactly what we're going to see as we look at chapter 14. Uh, That's the the red block there, the tribulation. The next big event is going to be Christ's coming. But what triggers all that is what we see in Revelation chapter 11. Okay, Revelation chapter 11 tells us something's going on. So in your Bibles, if you're uh, there, uh, it says... In verse 1 of chapter 11, there was given, uh, then I was given. So John, remember he's narrating, he's actually there. Uh, John is in the future. He's seeing it happen. Now that's a little hard for us. It hasn't happened, it's in the future. That's because we are bound by time, but John briefly is allowed to come up where God is. Now do you remember how the Bible describes God's presence? God continually sees the end from the beginning. He sees it all at once. Have you ever thought about that? God does not see like we do this moment. Oh, now that moment's gone. We're in this moment. Oh, now we're in the next moment. We're in this continual 
progression of moments. No, God sees it all. The whole spectrum from beginning to end, all at the same time. It's fascinating. Uh, in physics, that's very that's called dimensional, dimensionality, which means that each dimension, the further up you are, you see more and more of them. Time, for us, is a dimension that we're bound by, but if you're above it, you would see time and also, you know, length and breadth and height, you know, all of those things are dimensions, and that, when you're above it, you would look down and you would see the whole thing. Now, how many dimensions there are, we don't know. But there's certainly one beyond ours, because you see people going, beep, 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 beep. I mean, angels appear and they disappear. Do you think they went on a, you know, off to some distant place? Well, no, God says that we live before his face. Now, here, I'll, I'll show you how as a little boy, I mean, I really pondered this because remember, I think in pictures, I could not figure out how I could live before the face of God. And one day I was in my room uh, at my desk looking at my little ant farm. It was about the size of my Bible. And an ant farm is a very narrow, two pieces of plastic or glass with a lid. It's all sealed. has a little hole that you drip in water and give them food. But most of the time, you were looking, and they lived completely in your sight. It was so thin, they couldn't have any of their little trails or nests that I couldn't see. It wasn't thick enough for them to put up, you know, walls or curtains. It just, I saw all of them. But they couldn't see me. But they constantly lived their life before my eyes, before my face. But none of them saw me there. I would, <clears throat> and they'd just keep walking, you know, and I'd do something, shine lights at them, and they just, they didn't really ever notice me. But they were before my face all the time. Did you know in a real sense, your life right now is inside an ant farm that's bounded by the physical universe in which you live and the progression of time, and you are sitting and I am standing this very instant right in front of the throne of God. In fact, he was seated on his throne watching you as you got up this morning. And as you got near the edge of your bed, he waited to see if you would land in that circle and say, God, I'm your servant. You started the day last night. The evening and the morning is, you know, the next day. You start last night. I'm just joining in with what you started what do you want me to do today? See, that's the whole idea of Paul. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, brothers and sisters in Christ, that you present your body a living sacrifice. We're still alive, but we offer ourselves back to God. So we're living in front of the face of God. But look at what happens in chapter 11. John is up there seeing the future like God does, and he was given a read. He actually could like they do those blip, blip, in and out of our dimension, he goes into the future and he measures. Look, he measures. Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. What is this? This is an end of days third temple in Jerusalem. Now, I showed you a few pictures of, of the uh, temple of Solomon, what it probably looked like on the left, and uh, kind of a archaeological view of what the temple of Herod, the second temple, looked like on the right. But what we see in the scriptures is the third temple has arrived. 
It's there in the future. It's there during the tribulation. When God asked John to measure the temple's holy place and holy of holies at Jerusalem, he reminds us and, and reminds John that God owns that city. Did you know if you're going to ever be in business, there's a great axiom, a truth, a principle of business. You can't manage anything you can't, what? Measure. They always tell you that in business seminars. That it, an effective manager, you're not managing some department if you're not measuring all the things, you know, the employees and their output and their cost and their productivity. Blah, you, you're measuring that. Business is about managing by measuring things, okay? God says, that belongs to me. That's why I'm measuring it. I own that city. I own that temple that would be built during the tribulation. And by the way, Daniel saw that temple in Daniel 9.27 and 12.11. Jesus saw that temple in Matthew 24.15. Paul saw that temple in 2 Thessalonians 2.4. I'll tell you what, if Daniel and Paul and John and Jesus all saw something, you can be sure it's real. And they all talk about the very same place that we're seeing right now. Uh, it's called the third temple. Why is that? Well, the first temple was Solomon's. He built it 970 to 950 about. The second temple was Herod's. He actually uh, you know, enlarged and, and grandized Zerubbabel's temple from the return of the exiles. And he did that from 20 BC and died. And it finally got finished. Remember they said, uh, you know, over 40 years the temple's been under construction. Yeah, it had been. Uh, they were still working on it. And when you get to go to Israel, any of you that do, uh, you can see right where they stopped. Because when you walk through what's called the Rabbinic Tunnel, which goes from the, what we call the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall, and it punches through under the city, and you actually follow the Herodian stones that are unbelievably large, some of them weigh 580 metric tons. And yet, we always tell the groups, you know, take out your credit card and you can't stick a credit card between the 580 ton blocks. They're so closely uh, lined up together. But you keep walking on them and you see and they're beautiful and they're finished, but you get near the end, you're almost under uh, what we would call the Antonian Fortress. You know, it's called the Sisters of Zion Convent today in modern Jerusalem, up above. But you're down below in the first century level, and all of a sudden the rocks aren't finished anymore. They still have protruding uh, little holders they use to, to move them and, and cart them along. They just stopped building Herod's temple. They ran out of money, and they just left it. So that was the second temple. It was, of course, destroyed uh, during the the siege of Jerusalem in AD 70, but the third temple's right here in Revelation 11, and it's built sometime. Did you know that, that the, the temple faithful, they're called, it's a group of Jewish people that really want to build their temple, and they have a, a, in Jerusalem, they have their own little place where they're making the high priest garments, they're building replicas of all the temple fixtures, and, and every year they have this, they call it a cornerstone, it's, it's a huge rock, that they've made out of limestone, and they put it on a cart, and the whole Temple Faithful group, hundreds of them, all pull that rock and try and take it up on the Temple Mount, like they're putting up the, the kind of cornerstone of their new temple. And every year, the, the, the rioters, the, the, the one that controls the Temple Mount, the WAF, it's called, uh, 
the Arab presence, they resist them. So every year the police have to come and they have to surround these people with their, their cornerstone and they pull it back and put it back in the storage room. But they do it every year and cause a riot every year because they want to build this temple. It's not because they've read Revelation 11. They don't even believe Revelation 11. They just want to do it. And something is going to happen, and basically someone is going to happen. We're going to meet him later on today. The Antichrist finally resolves the Arab-Israeli conflict. I mean, you know, Clinton tried, remember, Camp David, and everybody's tried over the years. The Antichrist does it. And he allows the Dome of the Rock to stay, and he puts, gives permission for the Jews to build their temple right next to it. How, how do we know that? Well, look back. Look, look at the uh, wording. Believe out the court, verse 2, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it's been given to Gentiles, and they're going to tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. You see, there's this outer court, and... I mean, if you were building a Jewish temple and there was an Islamic shrine, you would not consider that to be holy. Neither one would. But the Antichrist gets them to work together and, and he allows them to actually reinstitute sacrifices. Interesting. And then there's a final temple. We're going to run into that our last day, our second to last hour. And that is God's visitor center. It's the millennial temple. It's huge. Uh, it's, it's in, I'll, I'll show you a picture of it. It's 25,000 cubits. 25,000 cubits is 37,000 feet. That's seven miles wide and seven miles this way. It's a gigantic, kind of like uh, when you go to Washington, D.C., in that area between, uh, you know, the Washington Monument and it goes all the way down the, the avenue. You can see all the, the reflecting pool and all that. It's only at seven miles wide, seven miles long, this huge plaza with a temple in the middle. So those are the four temples, the, the ones the Bible talks about. So there's a future Jewish temple during the tribulation. It's in Jerusalem. Jesus saw it in Matthew 24. Paul saw it in 2 Thessalonians 2. Daniel saw it in Daniel 9. And John sees it in Revelation 11. And it marks the career of the Antichrist. And you say, well, how do you know that? Well, verse 2 tells us, leave out the court. And don't measure, it's been tread underfoot for 42 months, and I'll give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy, oh, now we've got something else, the two witnesses. So we have a temple, and then we have God sending these two evangelists that are fire, you know, calling, I mean, they're invulnerable, um, unbelievable, we'll talk about them, for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. So they're mourning uh, the, the Antichrist the condition of the world, and the unbelief of Israel. And those two are the olive trees, the two lampstands standing before the God of earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds out of their mouth, devours their enemies. I mean, these guys are amazing. If anyone wants to harm them, they must be killed in this manner. And they have the same powers that, I mean, Moses and Elijah both had these similar powers. No rain can fall, verse 6 uh, during the days of their prophecy, they have power over water to turn the blood like Moses to strike the earth with all plagues like Moses whenever they want to. So they can make it stop raining, they can send plagues. And they, they are primarily God's instruments trying to point Israel back to him.
So basically, the career of the Antichrist is here stated to be 42 months or the last three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation. This is a period when God protects the Jews in the wilderness. We're going to see that in the next chapter, 12, verses 6 and 14. The coming world leader, commonly known as the Antichrist, he has 33 titles in the Old Testament. I mean, remember, the book of Revelation isn't anything new. It's just put it codifying and making a beautiful cover picture from all those amazing prophecies. But in the Old Testament, the Antichrist is promised to come with 33 different titles, and he has 13 different titles in the New Testament. And one of these titles is the prince who is to come. It's from Daniel 9, 26 and 27. And it says, it, the prophecy is, the people of this prince would destroy the city and the sanctuary. And this reference is to the Romans. What it says in Daniel is the same people that are going to come and destroy Jerusalem in AD 70, their prince, who's going to be from the same people, is going to come and allow this new temple to be built. That's where we get the idea of the revived Roman Empire. The only problem, you want to know the problem of the revived Roman Empire? If I had my map, I showed you last week all the time of the Roman Empire. Remember that one with the Mediterranean in the middle and I showed you, you know, Patmos and all that? If you look at that map, today, half of all the Roman Empire is Islamic. The areas in the Bible times that were the Roman Empire, all of northern Africa, all the way around the Levant, as it's called, the Holy Land, all the way up into Turkey, that whole stretch is Islamic, and guess what? Because of the Arab Spring and the millions of Islamic people that all ran and boated. Do you remember they were floating and just going in life vests and all those tragic pictures of the people that were drowning? They flooded Europe, millions of them. The birth rate of modern secular Europe is 1.8 children per couple. So two people produce 1.8 children. I always wonder about the 0.8 part, you know what I mean, but, but on an average. So what we're saying about Europe is they're not, they're not able to have perpetuation of the European civilization. They have a very low birth rate, so they're declining. Kind of like, you know, Japan is declining, Russia is declining, many countries are declining. Their birth rates aren't enough to keep them at least level. They're going down until the millions of Islamic refugees came. Guess what? The average Islamic family has six to eight children. Now, you just plug that into your Excel chart on your Microsoft software you guys have. You have a European birth rate of 1.8. You have an Islamic birth rate of 8 or like 6.8 or something. They have projected that France will be a majority Muslim within 30 years. England within 20-some years. Belgium, Italy, Spain, Portugal, all of them. Within your lifetime, if the Lord tarries, they're all going to be Islamic. They're going to be a majority of Muslims. So Western Europe is no longer going to be Judeo-Christian. It's going to be Muslim. So you know what's fascinating? If you look at that map of the Roman Empire, and if the Bible scholars are right that, that this coming world leader uh, is something to do with the Romans. Bible scholars see the future prince to come as from an area of the Roman Empire, which is now more than 50% Islamic, and within 20 years is going to be majority Islamic. 
Isn't it interesting that when the Antichrist kills enemies of the state, how does he do it? Beheading. When ISIS marches out the people in the orange outfits that are bound and they have to get on their knees with their hands bound, and they go like this and they videotape. Do you remember any of that a few years ago? How'd they kill him? Beheading. That's the Islamic way of capital punishment. I mean, none of this electric chair stuff and lethal injection or firing squad. You behead them. That's what the Antichrist does. So it's very possible. You want something that's interesting to think about? The coming world leader, if he really is from the area of the Roman Empire, could very easily be a Muslim. Fascinating. And he negotiates with his own, the Muslim people, to allow the Jews to live in peace and build their temple. He is amazing. And we'll talk about him later. Uh, it's just fascinating to study prophecy. Well, the two witnesses arrive. I already read that in verse 3. And again, God introduces us to his team members. This time to the two witnesses. They are especially testifying to Israel. That's their purpose. They're needed the Messiah. They serve for 42 months or 1,260 days, which is three and a half years, until the Antichrist slays them. You notice that God said, and we already covered this in Smyrna, just because you serve the Lord doesn't mean you escape death. Doesn't mean you escape persecution. Doesn't mean you escape uh, all the troubles. So these two witnesses are invulnerable until, they're, until they finish the course. Remember Paul said, I fought the good fight, I've kept the faith, I've, I've finished the course. I've run all the agonizing laps of the stadium that God wanted me to run, and now they're marching me outside to mile marker, I don't remember, we were just in Rome, and there's mile marker number 13, I think, of the Roman road system where they marched citizens out that had to be executed. They took them way outside the city so no one would see it, and Paul was taken out there and beheaded because he was a Roman citizen. He wrote half the Bible. He didn't escape martyrdom. Same for the citizens or, or the members of the church in Smyrna. The same for the two witnesses. And very possibly the same for the 144,000. We're going to bump into them today. They go into all the world during the plagues. They don't get killed by the plagues. They go into all the world during all, the, all those horrible things. But by the time we get to chapter 14, they are all, they're all in heaven now. How did they get there? Most likely, like the apostles, like the people of Smyrna, like the two witnesses, they suffer. So don't think that serving the Lord somehow makes us impervious to, as uh, again, uh, Mark Strout says, that there are many trials. But the Messianic Jewish revival comes because of their work. Verse 4, John draws from Zechariah 3 and 4. The Old Testament minor prophet Zechariah, chapter 3, chapter 4, talks about the two olive trees and the lampstands that spark a revival in the Old Testament times, speaking of a future, and now we're seeing it, Zechariah says there's going to be a future revival here in the tribulation among God's chosen people of promise. So basically, this is everything that the two witnesses, uh, the Bible tells us about them. Uh, they are measuring the outer court of the Gentiles, so that means the temple is allowed to be there, and for 42 months it's overrun, uh, trampled. Uh, the two witnesses are empowered. They can call them fire from heaven and shut the heaven with no rain like Elijah did. They can turn water into blood like Moses. They can smite the earth with plagues. That's why God never tells us who they are. He just tells us what they do. And so there are all kinds. Some people think it should be Elijah and Enoch. 
because both of those were translated to heaven. They're great candidates. Uh, but why did Jesus show himself and talk about all that was ahead on the Mount of Transfiguration with Moses and Elijah? So there are clues, but God doesn't name them, so we don't need to know. But the beast from the abyss, that's the Greek word, abusos, kills them. The earth dwellers celebrate they're resurrected after three and a half days. So that's the complete history of the two witnesses. They serve in verses 5 and 6. And like I said, uh, um, you know, I already read everything that happens. God's protecting them. We don't need to speculate. The clues probably is this Mount of Transfiguration. Because there, Christ is, you know, in this brilliant, blinding glory like he's going to be. Remember how Paul describes the second coming, 2 Thessalonians 1.7? In flaming fire he descends from heaven, uh, taking vengeance on his enemies and consuming them. Uh, that's what they were talking about. But now look at verse 7. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit, that's another one of the titles of this 33 in the Old Testament, 13 in the New Testament, here's one of them. The beast, not just any beast, remember there are other, Daniel's talking about beasts, you know, the looking at the Persian Empire and the Babylonian Empire, all that. This is the beast, not one of the many beasts, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit. So wait a minute. Is Antichrist human? Or is he one of these, like yesterday's, Abaddon, Destroyer, Apollyons. No, he is a human. But he is, he is an example. Just like when you look at, at Paul, you can see what someone 100% filled with the Holy Spirit can do. When you look at the Antichrist, you can see what someone 100% filled with the Holy Spirit, or I mean with the unholy spirit, with the spirit of Satan, can do. So he's a human, but the, the Antichrist is totally indwelt from the one from the bottomless pit. And so it's just the incarnation, we could say, of Satan. He makes war against two witnesses, he overcomes them, and he kills them. Wow. The worst human to ever live. He is the beast in chapter 11 of Revelation, ascending from the bottomless pit, and then he's later introduced, we'll see today, as the Antichrist in Revelation 13. Next, look at verse 8. And we, we already covered this um, uh, yesterday. But it says, um, And their dead bodies, verse 8, will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt, where our Lord is crucified, so it's Jerusalem. And those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations are going to see their dead bodies for three and a half days. So either we have everybody in the world traveling to the Middle East, to Jerusalem, all going on a Holy Land trip, or, as we talked about, they're all watching it on social media. And their dead bodies for three and a half days will not be allowed to be put into the grave. It's a global event. Verse 10, and all those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them. They'll make merry. They'll send gifts to one another. What a hard-heartedness. Celebrating at the massacre of two holy, righteous, sackcloth-wearing representatives of God, and the whole world, it says, rejoices. And uh, because these prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. 
can you imagine whoever is, you know, the people in Jerusalem are all serving the world and everyone takes turns and they get their phone out and they, you know, they live stream it. And somebody, you know, is going to be sipping their coffee and they're celebrating the end of these bad guys and they've, they're probably walking right up to them and they're just showing how the Antichrist killed them and all of a sudden they stand up. And they don't just stand up. They're fully alive and they go floating up. And can you imagine the scene? And the world is horrified as they're all watching. And it's on all the, you know, all the places they have TVs going. You, know, you ever eat out and there's like eight? I like to sit there and count how many televisions. Americans can't eat in these restaurants unless there's a television every direction you look. Can you imagine when all of the televisions get synchronized with that one person's feed. Unbelievable. Uh, but the whole world watches, that's global digital media, earth dwellers rejoice. By the way, the word earth dwellers is code. It's God's description for a lost person. You know how Christians sing, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through, my treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue, and earth dweller is the opposite. They want, this is everything, and they're going to cling to it, the earth, this is where they want to live, this is where all their treasures are, this is Mother Earth, you understand? That their life comes from and everything. That's what God calls lost people 11 times. Look at the references. 3.10, 6.10 of Revelation, 8.13, twice in 11.10, 13.8, 13.12, twice in 13.14, 14.6 and 17.8. Wow. Earth, an earth dweller is not a positive term to God. Remember what it says in Hebrews 11? These all look for a, a heavenly city. They said, we're pilgrims and strangers on earth. We don't feel comfortable here. Now there's a great test. Mark, uh, at last hour, was talking about, you know, uh, Abraham and the tests of his faith and everything. You know what a great test today for us is? How comfortable do you feel here? You know, I thought it was really interesting um, when we were raising our children, you know, Bonnie and I were blessed with eight wonderful children. They all got their mother's good looks, and they got the sin nature from me. So that shows you, you know, the balance in our family. And so our youth pastor used to have to talk to me about our kids because, you know, they, whenever they acted like me, you know, and got in trouble, he'd come and talk to me. And it's kind of hard because I'm his boss, but he's watching over my children. But I remember one time the youth pastor came and he said, you know what? He said, your children are different. He said, they seem out of sync. He said all the other, because they were one of the few homeschooled kids in the youth group, and every other kid in the youth group, all of them were marching to the same thing, you know, because the public school was doing this, and everybody was clamoring to, to either have the latest thing that everybody else had or do the latest thing everybody else was doing. He said, and your children are out of sync. I thought, That's a, that was a compliment, kind of a backdoor one. But what he was saying is they, they don't act like they feel at home here. And you know what the Bible says? This world isn't our home. We're pilgrims. That means we're going somewhere else. We're strangers. That means we don't fit in. In fact, that's why Peter said the early church was persecuted. You all know that, right? Look back at 1 Peter 4 and uh, see what Peter said, if I can find it. 1 Peter 4. Ah, it's verse 12. 1 Peter 4, 12. 
Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which has come on you, uh, as though some strange thing was happening, but rejoice. Uh, but, no, that's not the one I wanted. It's the one which says, they think it's strange that you... Oh, here we go. Verse 4. It's First Peter 4.4. 4. In regard to these things, they think it's strange that you do not run with them. In the same flood of dissipation, you they speak evil of you because you're not going along with all the stuff they're going along with. And that's part of why the early church got persecuted. When the Roman Empire started having public displays in their theaters of immorality, and, you know, we have R-rated and mature-rated whatever media on Netflix and everything else, you know, and so you can watch someone committing fornication or adultery or whatever. That was not in, on the screen. That was in person. They used to have entertainment of sexuality. Remember, they already didn't wear any clothes in the gym. So that people would come to the theater to watch the latest thing of immorality. And you know what? When people got saved, they stopped going to the theater. And then when they started doing the bloody, you know, uh, gladiatorial stuff, Christians stopped going to that. Christians would not be entertained with gratuitous violence, with bloodshed, with immorality, nudity, or anything to do with the occult. Well, there you just got rid of almost everything the Roman entertainment was about. And so... Earth dwellers love that. They also send gifts in the middle of number seven there. That's global connectivity and communication. And when God resurrects the two witnesses and takes them to heaven in a cloud, the stunned world watches in utter disbelief. And then look what it happens in verse 13. I love it. Some get shaken. So back to, uh, and every time there's a disaster. Remember, I, I told you that when, when um, the Ukraine started, and all these horrible times came, unbelievable interest in the Bible. People got shaken. Look at 11.13. In the same hour, as the two witnesses are going up, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid, look at this, and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now look at this. Some get shaken enough to glorify God. And the earthquake prompts a response of faith in some who glorify God and probably are a partial fulfillment of what Zechariah 12.10 and 13.1 predicted, as well as Paul in Romans 11. So after the two witnesses finish their ministry and God resurrects them and the earth just convulses, a bunch of Jewish people come to faith. What a blessing. Okay, I have to talk a little faster. Hardened earth dwellers shake their fist at God. Look. Look at what it says in verse 8. They, they are letting their bodies stay there and they're rejoicing over them, all that. The people's response to all God does shows their utter disregard for the Creator. Remember Psalm 2 says the nations were angry? Fallen human hearts are so deceitful. And, you know, Jeremiah 79, the heart is desperately wicked. And who can know it? That's a reminder how, how evil we can be. Stone-hard, damnably impenitent is what we see, uh, especially right there in the 18th verse. The nations were angry, your wrath has come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged, and you reward your servants, the prophets. Wow. And those who fear your name. 
Wow. Then, look at verse 19. God's wrath and justice are holy. Now, this is fascinating. The temple of God was opened in heaven. Do you remember when the Bible talks about Moses going up on Mount Sinai for 40 days, meeting with God in the thunder and cloud and smoke, and and the children of Israel were scared and the ground was shaking? Do you remember all that? What did God show him up there? He didn't just write the Ten Commandments. He showed him the architectural plans for the tabernacle and temple. It actually says that God, which God showed him. The book of Hebrews says, which God showed Moses in the mount when he was up there. Well, look what we're seeing here. There's actually, see, a temple in heaven. Now, it's not there when we get to 21 and 22. It says God becomes the temple. But right now, while God is, is unfurling and unrolling and accomplishing his plan, there is an actual building that angels come in and out of carrying censers and all this stuff and it has altars and everything and the ark remember raiders of the lost ark well we found the ark there it is the ark of his covenant is in the temple in heaven not the one that that solomon you know watched over its construction the temple and the ark was put in there not the one that moses gave the plans and and was built by the the jewish people in the wilderness not that ark the ark that Moses was shown to copy one for the earth is up in heaven. Now look at this. There were lightnings, noises, thunderings, and an earthquake and great hail. That gets people's attention. What it's saying is God's wrath and justice are holy. And verse 19, do you remember how God tore open the temple curtain exposing the Holy of Holies when Christ was crucified? Do you remember the five mighty signs from Calvary? One of them was the temple veil was torn. There was an earthquake. Do you remember that? It got dark for six hours. Do you remember what else the Lord did? He reached in the graves, and it says saints that were dead and buried came to life, but didn't come out. This is Matthew 27. Didn't come out of the graves until Christ came out. I mean, the resurrection, the whole crucifixion event was huge, which I'm sure you're studying in some class, the Gospels. But God parallels one piece of that. Just like the temple veil was torn from the top to the bottom in the temple in Jerusalem, now God throws open for us to see the Holy of Holies. We see God opening the temple in heaven as a reminder of his promised redemption at the end, as the end draws near. But always remember that God's wrath is holy and just. Now real quickly, um, this, this worship we see in verse 19 was open, the ark, the temple, from verse 17 and 18, all this giving of thanks. Worship, described by the Bible, is quickening our conscience by God's holiness. That's why every time worship in heaven is talked about, there's holiness. It, when we think of God's holiness, our conscience just comes alive because God gave us our conscience and we want to be holy as he is holy. Our minds are nourished by truth. We can't really worship God unless we worship him in spirit and in what? And so we need to be nourishing our minds in the word. He purifies our imaginations by his beauty. Did you know we need our imaginations purified? Do you know what one of the great problems of many people is? They're fantasizing. They are imagining sin that they could never do, but they imagine it in their mind. And that is a real hindrance to worship. And so God wants to to purify our imaginations by us seeing that he is more beautiful than 
our desires and our fantasizing of things that dishonor him. He opens our hearts to his love. You see, God is, is an endless supply of love. The only limiter of our love is how much we don't let him fill us. He wants to overflow us with his love. And then worship is a submission to God. Actually, the word worship, pros, kuneo, uh, means kind of like to kiss toward. Uh, if you get down uh, in fall before a, a king, you know, and you just go like that, you know, and fall on your face or get on your knees or whatever, that's a sign of your submission. So worship involves all those things. Submission, opening our hearts, purified, nourishing, and quickening our conscience. Now we get to chapter 12. And we only have nine minutes to cover chapter 12, so here we go. There is a galaxy-wide cosmic being demonic warfare raging today. You say, how do we know that? Well, look at chapter 12. And this is where we see Satan's army forming. Uh, for the war in heaven, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and moon under her feet and on her head, a garland of 12 stars. And immediately you say, I think I read that in Genesis. And you did. That's the dream that Joseph had. And being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain and gave a birth. So that's the nation of Israel uh, giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. Boy, this is one of those things that people go wild. They go, what is going on? Is this real? Dragons, you know? And his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven. That's a third of the heavenly hosts. The, what this is, is this is a, a beautiful picture God's giving of events sweeping across time and human history. Uh, and he's intermingling. They're, they're, they're actually not chronological. Uh, they're just showing this panorama. The dragon, of course, is Satan, and he took third of the stars. That's the angels that, he, that rebelled with him. And the dragon stood before the woman, ready to give birth to devour her child. That's horrible. As soon as it was born, what is that? That's Satan prompting Herod to kill the, the infants uh, and destroy the, the coming Messiah. And she bore a male child. That's Jesus, who was to rule the nations with a rod of iron. That's Psalm 2. Do you understand? This is... We're beep bopping between Genesis and Isaiah, and now we're back to the book of Psalms because there are over 800 of these uh, woven together truths. And her child was caught up to God in his throne. Now we're in Acts 1. That's the ascension. Jesus ascending. And the woman, now we're going into the future. See, we've gone from Satan's rebellion to Joseph having a dream sharing with Jacob and his brothers to Matthew 2 and Herod and Satan prompting Herod, to Acts and Jesus ascending. Now we're looking at a tribulation event. The woman fled into the wilderness where a place was prepared for her by God. How do we know it's in the future? Look at this code that they should feed her there, 1,260 days during the reign, the career of the Antichrist. God is protecting the Jewish people, so Satan doesn't annihilate them. Remember, that's his goal. So God begins to explain seven last signs. This is the first one. There's another one in 13, 13, another one in 13, 14. We're going to bump into all these 15, 16, and 19. And he uses all these Old Testament images. Number two, I just read it. Satan is described as a dragon 13 times in Revelation. Satan wants to destroy Israel, but God explains Satan has sought to rule the earth and that's why this dragon has the seven 
you know, heads and the ten horns. All these seven kingdoms and ten future kingdoms during the tribulation. And Daniel 7 talks about that. So what's the, the war about? Satan's everlasting enmity against God. In verses 4 and 5, Satan sweeps a third of the angels along with him. It parallels with Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. By the way, Satan has always tried to destroy the Messiah. Look at this. In the Old Testament, he tried to corrupt Adam's line. That's what was going on at the flood. He tried to corrupt Abraham's seed. Remember getting Hagar in there and, and not being the son of promise. Then the famine, trying to kill them all off in, in uh, the promised land. Then the destruction of all the male children by Pharaoh. That was a way to get rid of the promised line. Then uh, Pharaoh pursues the whole nation. He's going to drive them into the water and kill them all, you know, and keep some slaves. And then the populating of Canaan with these people that God said are so vile and so destructive to my people. And then everything that was against David's line you can read about. And then how about this? Joseph almost got too afraid to, to take Mary to legitimize this, this transfer of the family name and to make Mary to be as if she was to be stoned. And God says, don't fear, Joseph. You need to marry her. Then Herod, you know, tried to kill the babies. Then at Nazareth, what they try and do? Do you think the Nazareth people thought of that, trying to kill Jesus and throw him off the cliff? No, that was Satan who always wants to kill and steal and destroy. Do you remember in Mark 4 and Luke 8, the two times Jesus was in the boat and a storm came and the boat was sinking and it was terrifying sailors who spent their whole lives on the Sea of Galilee? Why were they terrified? Because it was an unnatural storm. And then at the cross, Satan thought he won. And all that's summarized right here in Revelation 12. Well, the conflict of the ages is Satan opposing God's plan for Israel, the chosen people of promise, and God keeps his promise. And so the Antichrist rises to power. He breaks his promise to let Israel worship in the temple. He sets up what Jesus calls the abomination, and the Jews flee, like Jesus told them to in Matthew 24. And then, look at Verse 7, I, I love the, the way it says it in chapter 12. War broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he did not prevail, nor was any place found for them. So the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. That one verse connects it all. The serpent in the Garden of Eden, the, the one that tempted Eve and got her to sin, is the devil that tempted Jesus in the wilderness, is the dragon we see in Revelation, is Satan. So all you notice it puts it all together. The great dragon is the devil, is Satan, and he is the one. He is the accuser of our brethren that we see in Job, who accuses them before God night and day. But look at verse 11. They overcame him. By the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, they did not love their lives to death. By the way, that's the great Mark Strout was talking about, faith, hope, and love. They have faith in the blood of Christ. They have hope in Christ. That's their testimony, and they, they love him more than, than life itself. Wow. So chapter 13, we're going to get into uh, and continue next hour after the bell. We're going to see the man of sin, the superhuman, the final Caesar, the 666 author, the one that's like Jesus, the global leader, the peacemaker, and the Antichrist. That's all in chapter 13.
And what we see is that the Antichrist is a monster. And this chapter was to remind the church that one of the reasons God left us as believers on earth at this present time is to what? Resist Satan. Did you know when we preach the gospel and when we live the gospel and when we believe the gospel, we're, we're reflecting Christ's light? That's why the nations on earth that don't have very many Christians are so dark spiritually and culturally because they don't have the light of the gospel coming from all these little temples. In fact, Daniel tells us so much about, if you read Daniel 7 and 9, he is a super intelligent, super communicating, the Antichrist is, super politician, a super businessman, a super general, and he has a super ego. That's what Daniel says, but we're not studying Daniel, we'll just see what Revelation says. Beware of Satan, because he empowers this false prophet. Did you know that Satan's representative can call down fire from heaven and fake what the two witnesses could do?